Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Greetings, listeners. You're listening to Movie Oubliette, the continental-spanning podcast with me, Dan, enjoying the comforts of blankets and increased movie-watching as the frigid winter sets in down (laughs) in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, celebrating a promotion in the springtime of Cambridge, UK. In this podcast, we discuss the obscurest of genre films, sci-fi, horror and fantasy, because there's nothing more reassuring than signature weapons, rapidly climbing kill counts, and a rather charming New York murder mystery to puzzle through in the comfort of our cosy homes. Conrad, Mm. how are you today? (laughs) I am very well and fully recovered from my COVID vaccine. (laughs) Yes, indestructible, no doubt. Well, I'm halfway there. I've had dose number one, but yeah, it wiped me out for a day. I was really ill. (laughs) Wow, wow, wow. Yes, I I did hear that the AstraZeneca, the first jab is the worst. Um, But for like Pfizer, I think the second jab is the worst. Oh, interesting. That's yes. weird. Yeah, so I've been AZ'd. That's good. It's good. Yeah, no, I'm happy about that. But yeah, my immune system definitely noticed it. So <laughs> it's it's working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's a good so side. that's good. And you're uh, getting snuggly and cozy now because it's getting cold. <laughs> yeah, it's getting like, you know, five degrees colder than what it was. Um, I, I like winter. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of the cold and staying indoors and... Uh, wrapping up in blankets and yeah our dog also <laughs> loves loves the couch as well so it's uh we're, we're right. all winning here in this house yeah <laughs> <laughs> and watching more movies yeah well i mean we're trying to watch the all the oscar nominated movies well my, my oh. wife is anyway I've managed maybe three, and she's watched like 20. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. She's really uh, taking it seriously this year. Oh, well, that's good. I've seen Minari. I haven't seen many of the others. Yeah. We went to see Nomadland. That was pretty good. Oh, yeah. yeah. I want to see that. It's not out here yet. Mm, yeah. I Well, yeah. We've got cinemas. <laughs> You've actually movies. got cinemas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Slight difference. I'm very jealous. I'm hoping they open soon. They're supposed to open next month. They're supposed to oh, open here in May. Right. So, right, right. fingers crossed. So, Conrad, anything in the mailbag today? We have loads of mail. Lots of people talking about toys. The uh-huh. film we talked about with Jonathan McIntosh of the Pop Culture Detective Agency in our last episode. Right. I'll kick off with Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Oh, of course. Hey, Surge. <laughs> hey, Surge. He says, I watched five minutes of toys when I was little and I was really freaked out. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody was acting like a real human. Thoroughly uncanny. Well, I just watched the rest of it. And while it's not about to give me any nightmares, I definitely had a hard time engaging with the material. The gamification of the military plot line was really sort of prescient. But on a basic story level, I couldn't stop asking, what's at stake here? 
who is this for? Is this supposed to be funny or disturbing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, exactly what I thought. Uh, my main question was for every scene, what? <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah, he concluded by saying, it's a relatively obscure curiosity that seemed destined to flop, but not entirely hated by those who remember it, which was borne out by some of the other responses we had. MJ mm. said, ooh, awesome, my favourite movie as a kid, which probably explains a lot about me now. Oh. <laughs> I'm not sure how, but that's fascinating. Uh, Bethany Dunn says, I first saw it at age nine and I remember having to watch it multiple times because I couldn't understand it at oh, the wow. time. <laughs> yeah. I actually just revisited this film a few weeks ago and I still find it interesting. Mm, so, okay. It definitely yeah. is interesting. Yeah, that's a good word. Uh <laughs> Grill said, one of the most amazing films, bittersweet Robin Williams, predicted drones and video game militarization. Couldn't watch it for years as it wasn't on DVD. Oh, wow. Yeah. So a lot of people saw it as a child and remembered it, but couldn't get hold of it as an adult for a long time. Right, so, right, right. Sort of pent up demand for toys, it seems. Well Then Let's See said, seriously, one of my favourite Christmas movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a question mark there. I know. It's kind of in the same category as Die Hard, isn't it? Is this a Christmas movie? <laughs> yeah. Uh, have you seen the, um, oh, what movie was it? The new Wonder Woman movie. Oh, right. They just like shoved like a Christmas scene at the end. It's like, really? Huh? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> yeah, I haven't subjected myself to any DC movies. Oh, so, right. yes. yes, yeah, no, I'm not s strapping myself in for the four-hour Snyder cut <laughs> at any point soon. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and finally, Bob Tipping said, is toys what the kids call underrated? <laughs> <laughs> Which... Yeah, I think is a good way to <laughs> end the mailbag. But yes, thanks everybody for your comments. Mm. We've really enjoyed reading them, so keep them coming. Yes, more please. Mm. So Dan, what film will we be puzzling <laughs> over today? Oh yes, well, back in a minute. <laughs> oh, I seem to be at the docks in New York. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, who's that over there? Whoa! Oh no! Run! What is going on? Oh, here's the movie. <laughs> hey, you can't take a pee anywhere anymore. Okay. Who's that crazy lady with a gun? I think she was a police officer. <laughs> wow. New York policing. <laughs> so what film do you have for us today? Well, today we will be visiting your favourite decade, the 80s, mm. 1988, in fact. Uh, we will be discussing Maniac Cop. Oh, Wow. This is actually a patron's choice, so thank you to our patrons for yes. choosing this movie. Uh, it's directed by William Lustig and written by Larry Cohen. Ah, the writer-director of The Stuff. Yes, so second movie that we've come across. Uh, yeah. It stars Tom Atkins, the renowned Bruce Campbell, Lorraine mm. Landon, Richard Roundtree, William Smith, and Robert Zadar as... Yes. 
the menacing <laughs> Matt Cordell. Mm. Maniac cop. It's the 1980s in crime-riddled New York City, mm. and a series of grisly murders point to the most unexpected suspect, a police officer. <gasps> Hysteria sweeps the city as people arm themselves against the protective services. But Officer Frank McRae is on the case, following clues to a possible dead man. Oh, mm. and did I mention Bruce Campbell's in this movie? Well, yes. he shows up 20 minutes in as Jack Forrest, a police officer himself, and yeah. is calculatedly framed for the killings. Accompanied by his headstrong and fearless girlfriend, Teresa, also a police officer, they race to track down the supposed undead uniformed killer, Matt Cordell, Ooh. before it's too late and everyone dies. It's Maniac <laughs> Cop. Oh my. <laughs> Let's get into it, Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like fun. Let's brace ourselves for the mean streets of New York in the mm, 80s. After the break. <laughs> We are back to talk Maniac Cop. Mm. Had you seen this before, Conrad? I had not, despite being a uh, well-known student of the 80s, not being overly fond of slasher movies and certainly not cop action-y yeah. movies in that era. There were a lot of them. Oh, so yes, a sort of yes, a crossover yes. between slasher and cop procedural was not top of my rental list at the time. So I didn't see it at the time, not seen it since, but always been fascinated because it's Bruce Campbell around the period of Evil Dead 2. I think it was his first movie after Evil Dead 2. Oh. So I've always thought, oh, this must be a forgotten classic. Right, so, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hadn't seen this movie either. Bruce Campbell, for me, he's in the Evil Dead movies. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Is he in anything else that isn't Sam Raimi related? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I can't think of anything. Even TV series Xena, that was Sam Raimi as well, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. So I, I don't know. Like, it's it's hard to sort of judge him for being just the cameo guy, <laughs> apart from Evil Dead 1 and 2 and 3 being, you know, so renowned in the horror community. Yeah. It's good that he actually has a role as opposed to, you know, Intruder, where he <laughs> yeah. shows up as a cop right at the end for like two minutes <laughs> yes which was his next role after maniac cop so oh was it there is actually only one reference to maniac cop in bruce campbell's must read autobiography Ooh, if chins okay. could kill <laughs> where he says i got a call from a director bill lustig who i'd met during our evil dead sales days He'd just seen Evil Dead 2 in a theatre and was convinced that I was perfect for his next film, Maniac Cop. You're a cop, see? And you're mistaken for another cop who comes back from the dead to get revenge on all the bad cops who set him up. Sound good? <laughs> it was ludicrous. 
but Mr. <laughs> Bank Account convinced me to take the job. Next thing I knew, I was weaving through a massive crowd on the streets of New York City during St. Patrick's Day, shooting my first non-boys movie. Despite myself, I felt like an adult. Right. Maniac Cop was the perfect job at that time, but I was so in debt that I wound up flat broke by the time the shoot ended. Oh, wow. So at the cast party, I said my goodbyes and slipped out at about 11.30 that evening. This is way too early for a Hollywood party, but my security guard uniform was in the car and I had to report for work at midnight. Oh, wow. <laughs> so crazy. it was hard times for Bruce Campbell. He was just starting out and he doesn't look back on the film fondly. Oh, Let's say that. Yeah, yeah. Shall we talk about some of the other cast as well? Mm. Or even the writers? So we have come across Larry Cohen before in The Stuff. We have. The yeah. Stuff was not a great movie for us. We did not enjoy it as much <laughs> we, as no. other people. <laughs> but I, I do no. I am fascinated by some of the other films that Larry has directed or written. Mm. He's done the It's Alive trilogy. Yeah. Which I don't know. I'm I am interested. Yeah, me too. And also I really would love to watch Q. Yes. The the winged, the winged serpent. Winged yes, serpent. I have seen that one. Yes. But right. I don't remember it very well. Okay. But he's one of these sort of cult figures, isn't he, Larry Cohen? I mean, he's mm. no longer with us, sadly. He passed relatively recently. Right. But he had this whole countercultural B-movie, cult movie machinery mm. going on. And people seem to really get excited about his stuff. But when we watched the stuff, we weren't <laughs> yeah, terribly yeah. impressed. How about the uh, director of this film, William Lustig? I don't, I don't think I've seen any of his movies. No, he doesn't seem to have been hugely prolific. Now he's known mostly for running the Blu-ray label Blue Underground. Right. which specialises in remastering forgotten slasher and exploitation movies. And yeah. he's doing a great service for fans and people really love him for it. Yeah. When you, when you look through his films, he's he did Maniac, which is mm. pretty, uh, I guess, infamous. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen that's the original that he did. I've, I've only seen the, the remake with... Uh, Daniel Radcliffe. Elijah Wood, yeah. Elijah Wood. Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> I always get them mixed up. Yeah. Whoops. No, people do that all the time to them on the street. In fact, they've actually signed autographs for each other in the past. Yeah, I think right. if you put the two of them together on a stage, the universe would explode. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he did Maniac, which is pretty renowned. And apparently Maniac Cop has two sequels. It's a trilogy. Mm. He did all of them as well. Um, but everything else I have never heard of. Me neither. I don't know. I I don't know with Larry Cohen. I don't know whether he was really a great countercultural figure who wrote these incredibly searing and interesting slasher movies that had sort of a germ of social commentary in there. But sometimes he just seems like he's just making a quick buck. You know, he's just mm, working sure. and trying to keep the money coming in because his account of meeting Bill Lustig and saying to him, Oh, you directed Maniac, didn't you? I've got an idea for your next movie Maniac cop it's a cop that kills people yeah and bill lustig said sounds great yeah and so larry cohen goes away a couple of weeks typing away comes back says here you go and it was green lit on the title and the premise alone and off mm. they go and make the movie so it didn't feel like i was you know considered a piece of art particularly just more like a get the job done kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like this movie does have a little bit more scope. Like, there is actually a little bit more going 
with it than just a B-grade 80s slasher. Like, the stuff felt very, like, oh, it's a miracle they even finished that film. It just, <laughs> <laughs> there's so much wrong with it. Whereas this felt like a thought-out, executed piece of filmmaking. Like, everything yeah. looked and felt like it was supposed to be there. Yeah. And characters had development. It's also interesting with this film that going to spoilers here, the main character, what you think is a main character, just dies halfway through. Yeah, it's really <laughs> odd timing, isn't it? Because it's real weird. usually the model for this is to kill who you think is the protagonist at the end of Act One. Yeah. So Janet Lee in Psycho is the great model of this. And then it mm. disorientates the audience and then they get attached to a new character for Act Two and root for them in Act Three. Tom Atkins, they kill in Act Two. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just yeah. unmoored at that point. And you point. don't even meet Bruce Campbell's character, Jack Forrest, until 20 minutes into the film. Mm. It's bizarre, like in terms of that sort of structure of characters. It is, yeah. And I found it quite unsatisfying because I didn't really know who the protagonist was. Mm. And I wasn't terribly attached to either of them, although... Tom Atkins is really fun. I was attached to Tom Atkins. I thought yeah. he was a great character uh, of Frank. Mm. For me, I was almost glad that he was killed off because he was so cliche as that 80s, <laughs> you know, the old grizzled cop that's a bit traumatized because his partner's died and he wants to quit the force, but he's still there and, he, <laughs> you know, he's got a good heart and that sort of thing. Like, it's, that was the 80s cop character yeah so killing him off was like oh okay that, that was unexpected i didn't expect that but then you're you're stuck with jack yeah who you've only just met and you're like i don't who is this guy <laughs> yeah and i have to say as much as i love bruce campbell it's not his greatest performance mm. he's quite stilted and sure i find it difficult with bruce because for me his performance in evil dead 2 is pinnacle bruce you know it's yes. bruce goes crazy in a log cabin which i love mm. but it means that i can't really take him seriously in anything else yeah right like, he appears at the beginning of congo which is like a big glossy hollywood yeah. adventure movie based on a michael crichton novel yeah about killer apes in the jungle and he's on like a satellite link up screaming because he's being attacked by killer apes. And I just, <laughs> it's supposed to be horrifying, but I was just snickering. All right. Yeah, yeah, sure, so sure, sure. I find him hard to take seriously and I found him hard to take seriously as the earnest cop yeah. framed in this movie trying to clear his name. Uh, I, d I didn't mind him. I didn't think he was terrible. It was just a little jarring, I guess, because you were so sort of invested in Frank and then mm. suddenly and you're stuck with Jack. And also throughout the first half of the film, they keep sort of introducing characters and then killing them immediately. Like the <laughs> wife of Jack. Yeah. Uh, you're like, oh, is this the lead character we were supposed to be holding on? No, no. she's dead. She's she's gone. And then even the, the the first kill at the start, I thought, oh, is she the main character? No, she's not. She's dead. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like all of these characters get killed immediately after they've been introduced. <laughs> <laughs> 
talking about characters though, in this movie, I did like the fact that the female characters weren't useless. Yeah, the female police officer that Lorene Landon plays, Teresa, she's really gutsy. She works vice, doesn't she? Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's able to hold her own as the prostitute. She, yeah, you know, no, she can look after herself, and she does rescue the main character at the end of the movie, or yes. the second main character. Yeah, so exactly. it's not her that's in jeopardy being kidnapped by the maniac cop. It's actually Bruce who's handcuffed in the back of a truck, being thrown about all over the place, mm. <laughs> with her in hot pursuit. Exactly. And and prior to that, she's the one that gets away Mm. from Cordell in the police station and she jumps out the window and fends him off and gets away. Like, I thought she was done for, for sure. I thought, oh, this is the end. But no, she gets away. Yeah. No, that was really refreshing. So that's one part of the movie that I did really enjoy and thought was uh, credible, particularly for 1988, where in this type of movie, it could just be one scantily clad woman being brutalized after another but Mm. she stood her ground it wasn't exploitation at all it wasn't and it almost wasn't even really a slasher like in the fact that there wasn't a huge amount of gore i was surprised there was only really one scene we saw gore and and for the most part it was just showing dead bodies and yeah a lot of kills off camera no close-ups really I I thought, oh no, has it happened again? Have I watched the edited down (laughs) censored version? (laughs) Yeah. No, I don't think so. I think this is it. I mean, I certainly think the Arrow video version that I watched must be fully restored. Mm, No, I think it's just quite tame. It's I think it's more of an action movie Mm. than a slasher movie. Yeah. So in that respect, you know, I was quite disappointed. Although, you know, I talk about it's quite nice that the female character is rescuing the male character at the end of the movie. Yeah. It is bog standard TV cop show chase scene in cars at the end. Really? I was kind of impressed by it. I, d- I was unexpected. I didn't, because oh. I thought, you know, this is going to be low budget B grade. They're not going to have a chase scene, but they did. They had some cars flipping. That was nice. Yeah. <laughs> but it's standard 80s third act denouement. Let's just have some cars flipping. Yeah, and it always ends with the car flying out into the water at yeah. the docks. <laughs> of course. Every time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I was a little bit bored with that. So oh, yeah. okay. It isn't. No, it's not really a slasher movie. Yeah. It's almost similar to a movie like Dirty Harry. Yeah. You know, Death you've got, Wish, you've got someone like going around killing people and the cops have to figure it out. Yeah. From that aspect, it is interesting who the maniac cop is. So there's a supernatural element because I think he's back from the grave, isn't he? Or did the doctor say that actually he wasn't dead and he let him go? Yeah. I think that was it. I don't think there is a supernatural element in this. I think it's just a guy that was close to death, right. but wasn't. Yeah. But then again, there's that scene where they shoot him like 20 times and he, he just walks away unharmed. Yeah, and Teresa says he wasn't breathing. Mm. So I think there could be a supernatural element to this. Yeah. I think maybe it's been fleshed out more in the sequels. Yes. Because even his face, Cordell's face, wasn't what I 
expected because I know that still of the Maniac Cop mm. is all over horror. Right. In terms of like horror imagery, like you've got Freddy Krueger and Jason and you've got Maniac Cop and it's that sort of image of like that really weird face okay. that he has. And I expected that, but it's not in this movie. It's in the second one, apparently. Oh, right. So he's even more messed up in the second one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he looks like a zombie, pretty much. So they've gone full zombie in that. Kind of, yeah. Because yeah. in this one, when they reveal the face, it's not that terrifying, really. In fact, I, it isn't. I kind of laughed. <laughs> it isn't very terrifying. And they don't really linger on it either. He just kind of looks like he's got a bit of a graze on his cheek. Like, <laughs> Yeah, he's got a bit of a bad cut on his cheek and what appears to be asparagus on his teeth yeah so he just yeah. needs you know a bandage and some flossing and i think he'd be fine yeah yeah i did feel that the reveal was a bit disappointing but i did like the fact that they didn't reveal his face until mm. right at the last scene yeah and so there was that sort of sense of mystery i mean i know it's cliche with horror with the shape and jason yeah the fact that they just don't talk. You never really see their faces. And mm. it is that sort of cliche 80s slasher killer. Yeah. But I thought they did it well in this. It was nice angles and framing of how he approached the victims. Yeah. And they take the same approach with Bruce Campbell's character as well. The first time you're introduced to him, you don't see his face for a long time in that scene while his wife is talking to him. And the setup is his wife isn't sure if he is the maniac cop because he keeps going out in the middle of the night mm. for long periods and she doesn't know where he is and finally when he does turn to the camera they favor the side of bruce's face where he has a scar mm. so he actually looks sort of intimidating anyway and yeah his wife shrinks away from him yeah so yeah you could almost say that it's sort of like a mystery to begin with about yeah. who's actually doing it like it you is. might even be supposed to think that it's bruce oh you definitely you yeah uh, there was a definite misdirect in that scene and the fact that it was a red herring it totally got me really i, I was like oh bruce campbell he's the killer really yeah okay. that's it he's it and then yeah she follows him into the motel and turns the light on and he's just cheating having sex with another woman <laughs> yeah this is your chance to hear bruce campbell's sex noises people if you've always wanted to hear that yeah right <laughs> I have to say I didn't, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought it was a good setup. Like, yeah. I was misdirected. Uh, Were you? I uh, see. Well, I knew yes. that Robert Zadar, bless him, was famous for playing the maniac cop. Oh, so. right. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I loved how they didn't even show Bruce Campbell's face in that scene mm. until towards the end of it. And they just focused on all of him dressing and putting his belt on and his shoes and that sort of thing. And it was very reminiscent of the opening scene where that's what you saw of Cordell getting dressed and yeah. putting his hat on. Yeah. <laughs> I was impressed with the opening. It set the tone of the movie quite well and it kind of established the killer yeah in a sort of ominous way yeah i mean it's a bit of a trope isn't it to show the killer preparing to go out on their nightly hunt yeah you've seen that before yes i do realize this film is not inventing the wheel here it's doing slasher well 
I don't know. I've never liked slasher before, but I feel like now I understand slasher as a genre. Right. Like it's supposed to be cheesy. It's supposed to be sort of theatrical and over the top and you're supposed to be kind of cheering and like groaning at bad decisions. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I feel like that's what it is as a genre of horror. It's supposed to push those buttons and make you, you know, shout at the screen. Yeah, it's the roller coaster ride of horror movies, isn't it? It's supposed to be sort of audience participatory. Yeah. Don't go in there. And trashy. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> silly and dumb and funny as well. There was a lot of humor in this. Mm. I don't know whether it was supposed to be intentional humor as well. <laughs> yeah. Like the second kill where the boyfriend gets thrown onto the windscreen and there's blood just like dripping down the windscreen. And the girlfriend just accidentally turns the windscreen wipers <laughs> on and it's just hilarious. Yeah. I'm not sure whether it's supposed to be. <laughs> no, I don't think it is supposed to be. There are a few places where I think there's some intentional, slightly offbeat comedy. Like, I love the scene where Richard Roundtree's gruff police commissioner is talking to Tom Atkins. Mm. And then he says something about, you don't smile much. Oh, yes. And Tom Atkins <laughs> tries to do this awkward attempt at a smile and it's hilariously funny oh yeah yeah it's so wrong at the same time it's just like put that away i don't want to see that yeah no it's brilliant and it predates um the same scene in terminator 2 which was 91 oh, i think oh right right where they oh. tried to get the terminator to smile and he fails miserably yeah <laughs> Should we talk about the premise of this movie, the fact that the killer is dressed as a policeman, mm. sends the city into panic, like no one can trust police officers anymore. It's kind of relevant now, isn't it? Like with the, yeah. all the police brutality and, and people not being able to trust the police and all this violence and killing of civilians. Exactly, yeah. And I read an article that was published post the Black Lives Matter movement last year where somebody was reassessing Maniac Cop as being prescient and touching upon police brutality. Mm -hmm. And I think it is important that um, Matt Cordell is this dirty Harry figure that a lot of the cops on the force when they're remembering him because he's supposed to be dead are remembering him as this maverick, shoot first, ask questions later guy that sort of mm -hmm. they all looked up to, you know, screw the process, just shoot people. This mm -hmm. is the way forward. And Larry Cohen's script has him coming back from the dead, not as an avenging angel that's going after criminals. Mm. He's not even going after the people who put him away for not following due process. Mm -hmm. He mm -hmm. just kills indiscriminately. He's killing anybody. Mm. And his girlfriend chastises him for that. So it's almost like Larry Cohen is suggesting, look, look the ultimate end of this is not good. Mm. You know, you can't get rid of due process and just have somebody shooting first and asking questions later because lots of exactly. innocent people will die. So from that respect, the film really is interesting from today's perspective, I and mean, especially now with the recent verdict mm. in a very mm. prominent case dealing with this. And I noticed that there is a scene in the movie where they do interviews of people on the streets asking them, you know, are you worried about uh, the maniac cop? Mm. And there is a black guy in amongst the interviews saying, well, this isn't unusual. I've seen cops shooting my friends in the back when they were unarmed all the time. They mm. just kill black people indiscriminately. Yeah. And you think, wow, you're really going there. Mm. It's fascinating from that perspective. 
Yes, yes, exactly. I think that's why it kind of elevates this movie a little bit more than just a B-grade slasher. Mm. Like, there's extra depth to this. It's not just, like, a killer killing for no reason. The fact that he is dressed as a policeman is terrifying. Like, did you hear last year in Canada the Nova Scotia killing where a person dressed as a policeman and was going door to door and and killing people for 13 hours? And he wasn't a police officer? No. Okay. He had a a replica police car as well. Oh, wow. So it's frightening. It is, yeah, and it plays into... I mean, this is obviously Larry Cohen's touch because he talks about how throughout his career, as a source of horror, he would always pick... Things that were sort of innocent, like ice cream in the stuff, right. like oh, okay. the ambulance, like a cop yeah. and a baby and it's alive, you know. So it's always things that are supposed to be the good, wholesome, wonderful things in life. And then he makes them homicidal, even homicidal yogurt. You know, it's just, yes, yes. <laughs> that's his touch. Right. So I think that's what he was going for. I'm not sure whether he fully intended to stumble upon the minefield that is police brutality, but Mm, he mm, has. Yeah. I mean, it definitely wasn't a race thing. Like, he could have gone in that direction, but it wasn't because all the victims were white. Yeah. I think maybe he, he maybe is almost like an auteur in terms of just like, oh, this happened. I meant that, but he probably didn't. No, he, <laughs> maybe not, but certainly I think there is something in, because th- that sort of Dirty Harry figure was so popular in police movies in the 70s and 80s, that mm. maverick cop that just yeah. cut through the red tape and got the perp. Yes. But I think what Larry Cohen is showing here is that it's not something that we should... Um, celebrate. Celebrate yeah. at all, yeah. Mm. But uh, I have to say, the standard of policing in this movie... Yes. It's not great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Cherie North, who plays uh, Officer Sally Noland, who had a romantic connection with Matt Cordell when he was alive. Mm. The scene that I'm thinking of is when Tom Atkins, Frank McRae, I should say, is tracking her because he's figured out her connection with Mm -hmm. the maniac cop and finds her sort of having an amorous moment with him in a dock (laughs) late at night, stroking his white gloves. Yeah, a lot of stroking. Yes. <laughs> yes. When she hears a noise because Tom Atkins disturbs something, she just spins around, pulls out her gun, and just starts shooting yeah. just instantly. <laughs> you think, is this standard New York policing in the 80s? Maybe it was. Mm. Yeah, it is questionable. Yeah. I guess what you do for love, maybe. <laughs> maybe. But also, Bruce Campbell's boss, so Jack's boss, corners him when his wife's been killed. And, you know, you think he'd break the news a little bit more gently, but he just hits him with it, just sort of like, oh, your wife's dead. We found her with her throat slashed in a cheap motel. And I mean, he obviously thinks that he's the suspect, that he's done But he done is the it. suspect, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's a little bit of malice in how he delivers it. Oh, yeah, for sure. But it's not terribly professional, <laughs> is it? It's more theatrical, though, Conrad. Yeah. <laughs> no one wants to see procedural police work oh i don't know have you seen tv schedules recently (laughs) oh well yeah (laughs) yeah no i take your point in this movie maybe but still not the finest police work i've ever seen depicted on film Mm -hmm. (laughs) shall we talk about uh cinematography for this film Mm. i really liked it especially all the scenes with cordell and his victims thought it was really well shot Great lighting and and just how they framed Cordell as well. 
Yeah, he was often sort of backlit with blue light with mm. smoke around him. And... Yeah, but what was the weapon he used? Was that like a bayonet? What, what was it? It's, it almost it looked like a, a small samurai sword. <laughs> yeah, I think it was like a bayonet hidden in his billy club or something. Right. I think it was something he'd improvised himself. Yeah, great signature weapon, you know, I've never seen that before. No. He's made to look very menacing, the way that he's shot. And I think he's more effective when you don't see his face. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And and the actor, Robert Zadar, mm. um, he's got a strange-looking face. He does. He's got a huge jawline. He did, yeah. He had a condition, cherubism, right. that okay. made his jaw like that. So it's kind of cruel, really, that they used him in movies. I know. To be As sort of... The villain, yeah. Yeah, to be villainous. The yeah. yeah. He is menacing in the part, that mm. quite a hulking figure. Oh, huge. He seems just impossibly huge mm. uh, and the, the way he lifts everyone up as well when he strangles them it's oh yeah talking about uh i did mention like the scope of the film i was really impressed with some of these sort of sweeping aerial shots mm. that you saw especially the one that kind of goes across the bridge and then follows like the train it made it feel much more cinematic than just like a shitty B-grade slasher. Yeah, I wondered if that was stock footage. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, I thought this was a Larry Cohen trademark because that's right after the police station escape at the end of Act 2 yeah. where Jack and Teresa get away but Frank dies and you just have this travelling montage of them going through the city and on the soundtrack you hear them saying, we've got to go here and do this and do that and I thought, <laughs> right, you got in the editing booth and you realised yeah, yeah. there was a problem. Oh, <laughs> I was totally distracted by the sweeping shots of the, the bridge in, <laughs> in New York City. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking stock footage and looped dialogue because plot hole. <laughs> wow. There was uh, one part of the plot that I was confused. Like It seemed to jump more than it should have. Uh, was after the docks, when Frank was at the docks, did he recognise... Matt Cordell, I yeah, and then immediately started researching him because it just I felt like there was just something missing in the plot where suddenly he just knew it was Matt and looked through the records and was trying to find out about him. But it's like, were you that close? Because you, we could hear what Sally was saying to him. Yeah, but Frank looked like he was you know fifty meters away. So yeah, I, I know in the dark. Yeah, I couldn't figure out why he was following her in the first place. But then when I watched it a second time it was because she was the only one who knew where Teresa was right when she was attacked yes. so oh, okay. that's why he was following her to see well she's the source of information uh -huh, so uh -huh, who is she uh -huh. in league with and then I think when he goes for the records that's when he's told oh yeah Matt Cordell had a girlfriend too and oh, she was yeah. really devoted to him but she threw herself out of a window and broke her leg yeah so yeah there's a bit of detective yes, yes. work in the movie Mm. Not that Frank's rewarded for it. He just gets pitched out of a window, bless him. <laughs> yeah, I know, yes. But production-wise, it does look good for the amount of resources that they had during the movie. Yeah. It didn't gross very well, though. No, it did not. It's like 600,000 or something. <laughs> no, it was released on Friday the 13th, May 1988, where it placed 12th in the US box office. Uh, number one was Friday the 13th, part seven, The New Blood. Oof. No. The one with the uh, telekinetic girl battling Jason. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for Random Trivia. 
So Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia did you find in some dusty closed case files today? Well, this piece of trivia is about Mr. Robert Zadar. Mm-hmm. Uh, before he uh, forged his acting career, mm-hmm. uh, he was, in fact, a musician. Oh. So he was the singer, keyboardist, and guitar player for the Chicago-based rock band Nova Express. Oh, wow. (laughs) I've never heard of them. (laughs) No, maybe very short-lived. But he also used to do uh, some work with jingles as well for an ad agency. So, (laughs) different career path. You see, I thought you were going to say a wrestler or something, given his body size. You would think that, right? Yeah. Yeah, but no, vocalist and keyboardist. Mm. And they're not traditionally large people. Well, <laughs> keyboardists. No. <laughs> no, no one would say no to a keyboard solo. <laughs> well, this is true, yeah. <laughs> and that's our trivia. It is. Shall we talk about the score? Right. Did you like the score, Conrad? No. Really? (laughs) Really did not. No. (laughs) It's by Jay Chataway, who is probably most known for being a prolific Star Trek score writer Mm. for the TV series. So he did Voyager and Deep Space Nine and The Next Generation. So all the way through that run of Star Trek series. Yeah. He did um, Enterprise as well. Ah, did he? Yeah. So he's regularly employed on Star Trek TV series. Mm. In terms of horror, the only other thing I know of of his is Silver Bullet, which is a werewolf movie based on a Stephen King property. Ah, yes, yes. Yeah, I just could not figure out the plinky plonky broken toy and the whistling and the sort of lullaby. I thought, is this about a psycho baby or is this about a cop? Um, Yeah. Maybe you had a different response. I think maybe they were riding on the coattails of all of the other scores that had that sort of vibe, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and Poltergeist. Yeah. Even it almost sounded like Halloween in places. Not exactly, but it had had a similar mood to it and tone. Yeah. I really like the score, actually. Really? I would say that this is one of the best scores that we've covered in, really? in, in the movies that we've, we've covered <laughs> oh on the podcast. Yes, yes. Oh my. I, I adored the plinky plonky lullabies and the synths <laughs> and, and the boards and the weird pads and uh, also the sort of industrial percussion and really quantized drum machine stuff towards the end as well. I thought it was really great. <laughs> Did you? Oh, I didn't, I didn't like it. I loved the themes as well, yeah. Especially the prison scene. I thought that theme really worked and really sort of pushed the scenes further than they should have been. Yeah, I think for me it was just, he was working with obviously limited orchestral resources. So you've got the drum machines and the synthesizers, but you've also got a live band playing on Mm. the soundtrack. I think mainly brass and strings. So it's got that sort of TV series, small orchestra in a small studio space with a huge reverb added on it sort of sound to it. Right. And especially during that car chase where it's got, you know, program drum machines and brass just going, and I'm just thinking... It's TJ Hooker or something, you know. It's right, some right. cheap TV movie where they've done a small orchestra session and they're just going to keep cranking this music out every time there's a car chase. Right. For me, it just rang all those bells and I just hated it. I loved it. <laughs> I passion. loved it. Oh, it was so good. 
I, I know it sounds cheesy, but it really hit all my feel buttons, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I think maybe it's because I, I'm just like a big fan of synth or something, but it, this was like exceptional composing really? for me. Oh, yeah, I loved no. it. I mean, I'm a huge fan of synth too, but not this sort of 70s TV show synth plus small orchestra. It just, I don't know, it doesn't do it for me. No. Loved it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> For me as well, just like thematically as well, like it just seemed to be more cohesive as a score than some of the ones that we normally do in terms of slashes, like slashes for scoring is pff, normally terrible. Yeah. Like, terrible. Yeah. It's just usually <laughs> a cacophony of stingers and not much else and suspended notes and things. Yeah. Or like intruder, which is all just stock music. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, Jay Chataway is a great composer and I like his score for silver bullet. Actually, I have mm. that in my collection. Right. And it's not dissimilar in terms of the resources he has, but it, the, the way he uses them is different in that one, I think. Right. Okay. This particular one just didn't do it for me. I'm right. Oh, it so <laughs> did it for me. Oh. <laughs> Lastly, I, this movie is getting a remake. It is, yes, by none other than Nicholas Winding Refn. Yes. Quite amazing. And he's a huge fan of Maniac Cop. Mm, right. Okay. I don't get it. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to seeing what he would do because he's such a visual director. Yeah. Like he uses color really well. Yeah. And something that's sort of neon soaked and 80s inflected, particularly on the soundtracks, his soundtracks are always amazing. So, mm, mm. yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with it. Yeah. Have you seen his Pusher movies? Because I haven't. No. They're all on Mubi at the moment. So oh, I could okay. watch them. Yeah. It's supposed to be pretty good. Mm. Uh, I really like Drive. Yeah, I mean, everyone likes Drive. Yeah. Uh, I actually quite liked Neon Demon as well. Yeah, I did too. Uh, but that was polarizing. A lot of people hated it was. that movie. I yeah. mean, there were lots of scenes that were just like, this is not how people talk. <laughs> <laughs> there were lots of pauses in dialogue, like very long pauses. <laughs> yeah, it's an odd movie, but I really dug it, actually. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Have you seen Bronson? I haven't, no. That's a strange movie. That's Tom Hardy's finest performance, yes. apparently. Oh, yeah, he's good. He is good, isn't it? Mm. It's an odd movie. Structurally odd. Yeah. No, I would like to watch that one. Yeah, you should check it out. I'm very interested to see what Nicholas Winding Refn makes. Mm. <laughs> Maniac, Maniac Cop. Cop. Yeah, maybe a TV series, last I heard. So mm. we shall see. I am interested to watch the sequels of Maniac Cop. Right. Uh, apparently, according to some people, Maniac Cop 2 is better than Maniac Cop 1. Yes, the director is of that opinion, and so is Larry Cohen, actually. Right, um, okay. Well, although both of them have disowned the third. So. Yeah, yeah, that's the, the worst of the bunch. <laughs> yeah. I'll probably check out the second one at least. Yes, in which apparently Bruce Campbell dies very, very quickly. <laughs> oh, spoilers. <laughs> yeah, sorry. He just shows up, looks at a newspaper and gets stabbed. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's a basically a cameo, just like Sam Raimi's cameo in this movie. Ah, uh, yes, a, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> reporter the on the streets. Reporter, yeah, yeah. During St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> yeah, you could tell that the all the footage of St. Patrick's Day was actual footage because the camera is so shaky. <laughs> yeah, it's quick, grab what we can. Yeah. We've got hundreds of policemen as extras <laughs> for nothing. Quick, film it, film it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theater, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. It's the Mobley Awards, it's where we present our favourite red herring. Oh, you thought this was a killer, but no, parts of the film in a number of <laughs> final shot, but wait... Is the killer really dead? Categories. <laughs> Best quote. My favourite quote comes from Frank McRae, and it's when he's talking to a journalist, trying to leak information to flush out the killer yes. or uh, witnesses, and she comes back with, maniac cop stalks the streets or something, and he says, I knew I could count on you to sensationalise this in exactly the right way. <laughs> Well, wow. yeah. And at one point he says, make it bigger than AIDS. And I thought, oh, oh. that isn't age well. That, I uh, know. <laughs> so, yeah. But I did like his quips. What about you? Uh, my my favourite quote is from Frank as well. It's, uh, it's when he's leaving the shipping yard after spying on Cordell and Sally and he bumps into the security guard and he draws his gun in a, in a panic. And the security guard exclaims, Take it easy, what are you doing? And then Frank replies, I had to take a leak. In which the, the security guard says, You always take a leak with a gun in your hand? It's a good way to blow your balls off. <laughs> Best hair or costume? I don't know whether this stuck out to you, but the coroner's mullet. Holy shit. What a mullet that was. Yes. Jet black, very long on yep. the back, short on the front. Yeah. Yep. Business at the front, party at the back. It was a full-on 80s mullet in all its glory. <laughs> yeah. I also read, I don't know whether this is true, that he was the actual doctor of William Lustig. His really? actual doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Played the coroner. <laughs> really? <laughs> what was your favourite hair costume? Uh, mine was uh, Tom Atkins, Frank McRae. Again, there's this just wonderful piece of 80s uh, haute couture. Is that the right phrase? Where he's wearing this lovely sort of fluffy speckled jackets oh, yeah you know those uh, yes. you know charcoal gray jackets with the white flecks in mm. oh i just thought mm, that's so 80s yeah it. <laughs> it looks really warm as well yeah and yet i thought new york was quite hot during the summer but maybe this wasn't the summer i don't know mm, maybe maybe most, most 80s moment so the character of Teresa in her undercover outfit mm -hmm. yeah she she's definitely the most 80s fun of this film her makeup yeah. really 80s <laughs> oh god yeah. just yeah. why why did they put so much on it, it's like <laughs> she's been painted or something no she looks like a doll in some scenes isn't she it's mm, ridiculous mm, mm. how about your 80s what did you pick out? Yeah, I picked out the TV police show Car Chase at the end of oh, the third act. Yes. I just thought that anything that has to do with vehicles chasing each other and crashing and going into the docks at the end, I just thought <laughs> this is every single A-Team episode would end this way. Yeah. Every cop show would end this way. It's just like such a cliche. Mm, yeah, it was, it was almost more 70s though, I, I felt. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of 70s, like Dirty Harry type chase. Uh, and they yeah. also have to have the obligatory scene where a car gets air. Oh yeah. And goes off fully off the ground, which 
I mean, <laughs> I just think of the landing. Yeah. That's got to hurt. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've never seen a car do that in real life. No. <laughs> no. Never. Favourite scene! My favourite scene was the escape from the police station because I oh. thought that was the most action-packed. It also had the most, in, in terms of slasher movie gore, you had all the bodies that they had to discover, most mm. of them hanging from the ceiling yeah. for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know. I just imagine how much effort must have gone into killing all of those police officers and hanging them in all those positions. Mm. And nobody heard a thing. I know. It's just yeah. amazing. Very uh, efficient and quiet. That's killing. Yes. Very quiet. <laughs> what about you? Well, my favorite scene uh, was the, the prison flashback scene. Oh. So, so it's sort of explaining Cordell's demise. So uh, it's all in slow mo, shows him being escorted into the prison and all the inmates sort of showing their, their hatred towards him. And then the, the shower scene oh, yeah. where he uh, yeah meets his grisly end. Yeah. I don't know. I, I loved, yeah, that plinky plonky lullaby stuff <laughs> over it. The score really sort of uh, accentuated that scene and really intensified the death as well. Uh, I thought it worked really well. It was just a nice kind of set piece. It's almost like a standalone. Yeah, I get that. Most cliche horror moment. I, I think I've already mentioned it, but yeah, the 80s slasher killer, you know, the impossibly strong, impossibly huge, seems to get everywhere impossibly fast while just ambling. Walking, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the signature weapon, sort of the signature look. I, I like the sort of close-ups of the, of the white gloves. Yeah, I thought it mm. worked really well, but yeah. Obviously, very cliche. The silent killer as well. He didn't say a word. Mm. How about you? Horror cliche? My cliche is the cleaning lady discovers a dead body oh. and screams her brains out. How many oh, times? Yes. <laughs> they should get hazard pay, cleaning ladies, oh. because every time they walk into a room, there's a 50-50 chance there's a grisly murder <laughs> scene in there. <laughs> I mean, I, th I think it's probably realistic as well. It's, it's, it's all, oh, no. in, in, in all those sort of crime investigating shows, it's always either the cleaning lady mm -hmm. or a jogger. Yeah. <laughs> or a dog walker. Sometimes it's yes. dog walkers too. That's in, true. That's true. TV the dog shows. finds it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Best special effect. This is a tricky one because the only real special effect in the movie is probably the damage to the maniac cop's face. And I didn't think it was all that great. So mm. the thing I picked was the vehicle stunt at the end. I did think it was quite impressive, the old dive into the uh, the dock with the person jumping off the van at the same time and coordinating that. So the van spinning one way and the stuntman spinning another way so they mm. don't hit each other and I thought gosh that really must have been difficult to pull off and it's quite impressive so I actually had that as well really oh, I had cool. that as well yeah because uh, also the the van gets impaled mm, with a pole as yeah. well uh, and then when it when it launches off the dock it kind of spins as yeah. as well and with uh, Bruce Campbell kind of well his stunt double obviously hanging off the side <laughs> it was just like oh I've never seen it like this before it, it was uh, yeah different favorite sound effect I thought there were a lot of very obvious foley in this but kind of mm. well recorded 
I mean, it was obvious, but it, it, it sounded good. A lot of the handcuffs and keys rattling. Mm. But I really liked the scene with Sally. So she's the, the girlfriend or partner of Cordell, and she's got the leg brace. And you, the oh, first scene yeah. with her, you don't see her first. You hear her. Yeah. And I don't really know the point of it, because it sounded scary, but she wasn't scary. No. Um, but you hear like her sort of shuffling through the aisles of the, the records room and, and there's a kind of a nice rattly scraping sound that accompanies it. And it sounds great. Yeah, it does. I think you're supposed to think maybe the maniac cop is coming, although I don't really know why because he's not metallic and crunchy. Yeah. So I, don't <laughs> I don't know. I don't, don't no. know why it, it, it sounded as scary as it did sound. No. <laughs> My favourite was the obligatory screeching cat that's disturbed by a falling object. Uh, yes. <laughs> Which is in that dockyard scene that I talked about earlier where Sally just opens fire on Frank McRae because <laughs> she heard a noise. Yeah. And you do get that obligatory sound that you always get, which is the cat screeching as it runs away. Yeah, yeah. There must be a lot of stray cats in New York. Yeah. Most funniest moment! The scene that had me howling with laughter was during the police escape and it is a single shot of the maniac cop bashing Sally against a wall yeah. and I don't know what it is about it it's just sort of vaguely sexual because it's kind of rhythmic but also she's flopping about everywhere mm, yeah. and I just I don't know what it was, but it just made me roar with laughter. I just thought it looked so silly. <laughs> it looked ridiculous. And you didn't you couldn't really tell what was going on either. Like no. <laughs> was he shaking her? Was he bashing her against the wall? It, it just there was a lot of flailing and not many sort of impact sounds. <laughs> no. How about you? Uh my funniest scene was during the escape scene that you mentioned. So when mm -hmm. Jack and Teresa were escaping the police station. And I guess this was supposed to be intentionally funny, but so Jack is is trying to flee the police station and he's confronted by two cops. Oh yeah. Uh, which he holds up and orders them to lay on the ground. And he says, "Listen, I didn't do any of this." pointing at all the corpses and then one of the cops just replies sure you did it <laughs> uh, and as jack is exiting the building one of the cops asks shall we go after him and then the other one just replies you heard him he didn't do it <laughs> it's like who are these guys yeah gotta love new york cops yes and that's our movie please Hi, this is Scott Drebbit from Daily Dead and the Corpse Club. You're listening to Movie Oubliette. It's final verdict time. Should Maniac Cop be released from New York City to rampage into the wider audience's innocent brains? Or should it be killed <laughs> again and thrown into the Oubliette with its signature weapon and be forgotten forever? Conrad, Ooh. Maniac Cop, did it do it for you? I'm sorry to say that it didn't. I really appreciated the fact that it was a cut above the average slasher movie. It was a little bit more interesting and socially pointed because it's written by Larry Cohen. The production is reasonably good, apart from a few clunky things and looped dialogue for covering plot holes. Mm. But it's not that scary 
this kills aren't all that great apart from the police station is sort of the only orgy of blood in the whole thing and when you finally see the face of the killer it's kind of laughable and you kill the main protagonist in the second act and i don't care about bruce gamble's character really and then there's a car <laughs> chase and that it ended and then there was plinky plonky music and whistling and it it just didn't work for me i thought it was i thought it was interesting i'm glad i've seen it but uh, when bruce campbell was recently doing one of his uh, fan meet and greet sessions he challenged them to name a film that was a bad movie and he would defend it and the first person shouted out maniac cop and he mm -hmm. said wow that didn't take long yeah you got me i can't defend that one it's terrible <laughs> and <laughs> right. i agree with him i didn't think it was a very good movie so i vote for it to go back in and be forgotten oh well all of the mm. things that you mentioned is negatives i think are positives <laughs> oh <laughs> so we've got a premise that's just a, a a lot of steps above i think your usual slasher you've got mm. a, a a killer that is very ominous very menacing uh yes the reveal is not great <laughs> uh and yes a bit laughable i liked the sort of unconventional structure with with killing the the main character like halfway through it was surprising <laughs> i didn't expect that and the fact that the female character wasn't useless was very mm. refreshing and of course i can't not mention how exceptionally great the score was so oh, <laughs> <laughs> i would definitely vote to have this uh, this film released from the oubliette. Oh my. Well, mm. you know what that means. Yes, it's time for... The Coin of Fate! Okay, flipping the coin of fate then. So what's it going to be? Heads or tails, Stan? Ooh, maybe heads. Okay. Heads it stays, tails it goes. Here we go. Oh, what is it? It's heads. It is. Yes. Oh. Yes. <laughs> so disappointed. I think this movie is way better than I expected it to be. I thought, ah, oh, it's just going to be a, a shitty exploitation 80s slasher. I mean, it's called Maniac Cop. That worst title ever. <laughs> but I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, it has to be said, it's not exploitational and it is interesting for all the reasons that we discussed. Mm. And very relevant today. It is, but probably in ways that it hadn't really intended. But yeah. still, I just didn't enjoy it. <laughs> I loved it. I really loved it. All right. Well, your enthusiasm is paid off by the <laughs> coin of fate. So off you go, Cordell. Rampage through the streets. Yes. <laughs> Look at the size of those hematomas. So, Conrad, what's up next episode? So next time we are still going to be in my favourite decade, but mm. we're slightly shifting genres into the realm of apocalyptic science fiction comedy horror. So <laughs> next time we will be watching the 1984 American movie Night of the Comet. Oh, we've had one of the actresses on the show. Both. Both. Yeah. Yeah, both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How could I forget? Yeah. Yeah, we've had Catherine and Kelly on the show before, so we thought it was about time we actually watched one of their most uh, famous and beloved movies. So 
Wow. And we will be uh, joined by a guest, right? Yes, we will. We will be joined by the other half of Retroblasting, Melinda Mock. Yes. So after Michael French, we will have Melinda with us, the uh, star of the Retroblasting podcast Dreamland. So I'm very excited about that. Ooh, it's going to be good. It is, yeah. So she chose this movie and I can't wait to hear what she has to say about it. Mm-hmm. So listeners, if you want to stay up to date with our episodes, you can follow us on all social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Movie Oubliette. You can email us as movie.oubliette at gmail.com. You can send us some moolah, some money, uh, and <laughs> become a patron on, at Patreon. Patreon, and for as little as a dollar, you get access to extended segments of the episodes, and for five dollars, you get access to the mini-sode. Yes, where we talk about relatively recent films, and in our next episode, we're going to talk about Netflix's Love and Monsters. Mm, yeah, stay mm. tuned. And wherever you are staying tuned, if you'd like to rate us and review us, if that's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or... I don't know where else you, you kids listen to podcasts these yes. days. If you'd like to drop us a review, that really helps us out. Yes, it does. And spread the word. Mm. Tell your friends. Yeah. Tell your friends' pets. <laughs> <laughs> Get them little pet phones. <laughs> Have us on repeat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, thanks for listening, everyone, and bye for now. Bye. review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie I'm telling you, Frank, his hands were so big, they felt like ice, even through his gloves. He wasn't breathing. <laughs>